All right, First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. Tonight we want to look at living in light of eternity. Living in light of eternity. And we'll start out with the question, are we living in light of eternity? Are we living as though Christ would come today? Well, having a proper view of eternity will drastically affect how we live and also prepare us to, uh, to suffer if we need to. And if we go back and look in verse 1 of chapter 4 and see Peter's encouragement there. He calls believers to have an attitude of Christ in being willing to suffer. And like any good soldier, Christ was prepared to give his life and, and we as Christians should have this attitude as well. And then in addition to this, in verses 7 through 11, which we'll look at tonight, um, having a proper eschatology that is a view of end times. Uh, that would uh, also help us being prepared to suffer. Now, we can have no doubt that one of these things, that one of the things that made Christ willing to suffer was a proper view of eternity. You know, Christ always lived with the thought of the end in mind. In fact, throughout the Gospels, the Lord uh, sought to prepare Peter, even and the rest of the disciples, and prepare them for the suffering that was going to come. And he tried to develop this view in their hearts and lives as well. Notice what he says in John 14, 1 through 3. Those are very familiar verses. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So how could these disciples keep their hearts from discouragement and keep them from giving up, even though they knew their master was about to die? Well, they needed to have a view of heaven. Uh, if you just look at things around this earth, can be very discouraging. But if you have a view of heaven, you have a view of Christ coming again, uh, we know that Christ went to build a place for them in that sense, what we see there in, in John 14, preparing a place for them and for us, and we know he's coming again. And that should keep our hearts from being troubled during the suffering that we go through. And so one of the secrets to be able to suffer in a world where we're pilgrims, strangers, is to live with the view of the imminent return of Christ. When Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, there in verse uh, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. He's essentially saying there's nothing keeping Christ back from returning at any time. Uh, this was the early church's blessed hope, and it helped enable them to endure the sufferings that they were experiencing 
uh, in the world at that time. So Christ could return at any time. Now, an unhealthy view of the end times can sometimes push people to the extreme. Uh, if they don't realize, you know, that, you know, there is hope and uh, there is heaven, uh, sometimes they push to the extreme. They're thinking, you know, uh, it's not worth living. It's an extreme thing for someone to say it's not worth living and to take their lives. Well, that's because they have no hope. They have no a proper view of end times. And then a wrong view sometimes can bring laziness. Oh, well, we're going to live you know, quite a, quite a while, Lord hasn't come back yet. And so we just think, well, uh, no rush. And then a lack of concern of end times can sometimes encourage sin. And uh, others sometimes become overly concerned with making a big chart and trying to figure out the exact day. When is he coming? And a lot of men have have done that, and of course, uh, he should have been here by now, according to some guys. Uh, they've said, oh, it's going to be this date, and it doesn't come. Well, I misfigured, you know, so we'll figure that again. Well, uh, their math was apparently off. But, you know, we can discern from these extremes of having a wrong view of end times, and... Uh, it can affect us negatively. But listen to some of the benefits of living with a proper view of end times. Here in this context, we find where believers were being mocked and ridiculed and sometimes burned at the stake. Peter comforts them with the end of all things is near. Christ is coming. And uh, the consummation of human history, God is going to judge both the righteous and the unrighteous. God's going to correct all things. He's going to make sure that he ushers in the rule of righteousness, and we know that that's not that far away. It should be a comfort to believers. Enable us to persevere even through difficult days. So as we look at this particular passage, we must ask ourselves these questions. Are we living in view of eternity and what does a person look like who's living with this view and how can I better live this way in order to be pleasing to my coming Lord and very briefly here we'll look at four ways to live in light of eternity first of all we must have our prayer life focused let's have our prayer life focused again verse 7 but the end of all things is at hand be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Peter's saying that in view of eternity, Christians must have a focused prayer life. He talks about the virtues necessary to do this. A clear mind and being self-controlled. The word sober literally means to be in one's right mind or to have a sound mind. Uh, in what way should a believer be in his right mind? Well, of course, the primary way uh, we do this is have a biblical worldview. Look at things from God's point of view. Not a humanistic point of view, not the world's point of view, but what does, how does God look at the world? And a mind that's full of Scripture 
is the only way that one can be in their right mind. And this is especially true in the context of suffering, where most people do not have the right mind. Now, there's another aspect to this word sober. Usually when we look at this word sober, we think of someone who's drunk or intoxicated. And uh, where he's not probably talking about being intoxicated with alcohol, the word sober sometimes means to be free of intoxicants, but they could be spiritual intoxicants. Uh, Christians can become intoxicated with materialism. Uh, they can uh, become intoxicated with idolatry and worldly pursuits in order to pacify themselves during trials. You know, life is so difficult, I just think I'll go on a shopping spree. Well, that'll make me feel better. Spend a lot of money, maybe a lot of money I don't have. Go into debt. Otherwise, you know, I mean, life is hard, and I want, I deserve to be happy. And so people sometimes become intoxicated with materialism, not having the soberness in viewing the end events happening around them. Trials also tend to be a catalyst to draw people into addictions to alcohol and cigarettes and drugs and anything that's uh, 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 that's not dependent upon God, but they're trying to depend upon something in this world to try to soothe their minds. Well, none of these actions or attitudes are appropriate. Christians must, Christian must have a sober mind, and that is, notice also, watching. That is, one who's awake and alert so they can properly interpret the events happening and draw, be drawn into intercession in time of prayer. A Christian must have a right mind that's full of the word, alert, not given to intoxicants, whether they're physical or spiritual, but alert to the attacks of the devil, things that are happening in society, even though we need to be careful that we're not so overwhelmed and, and delve so deep into things that are going on in society, we forget to be in the Word. We're aware of what's going on. But we also need to be aware of the needs of others. What other people need? People around me, people in my family, people uh, in my neighborhood and in, in our church. What are the needs of other people? And so... In that way, we're self-controlled, not getting all bent out of shape or all involved in those things that the, uh, that the world is involved in. And all of these things are necessary in order to have focused prayer. You ever find that uh, it's difficult to um, pray? Well, why is that? How do you keep a focused prayer life? Well, you live in light of eternity. Secondly, we must love other believers fervently. Verse 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. 
When people go through suffering, it's very common for it to be the cause of discord. You know, if a husband has a bad day at work, it affects his relationship with his wife and the kids. When the wife has a, a bad day, you know, the kids are just about to make her hair, uh, you know, tear her hair out. You know, I just can't, you know, stand it. And it, it can cause discord. People get stressed. It brings up harsh feelings with emotions, sometimes toward other people that they love. So no doubt this happened in these scattered congregations. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, we see the implication that this suffering was causing rebellion among some of the youth in the church toward elders. In, first, uh, in the next chapter, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. A view of eternity should promote love in the people of God. Christ is coming soon. Uh, James called the Hebrews who were similarly scattered across uh, uh, the land because of persecution. He wanted them to care for one another in view of Christ's coming. Uh, they were warring and fighting uh, with one another. That's what uh, he was talking about in James chapter 4. Uh, where does... Uh, uh, where does this all come from? He says in James chapter 4, um, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts and your, that war in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. And then in James chapter 5, in verse 8 and 9, he says, Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. He said, stop grumbling, stop fighting. Because Christ the judge is coming. He's at the door. He's coming soon. Stop your conflict and walk in love toward one another. For the judge is coming. We should have a reminder of this as well when we're tempted to have disputes and disagreements with family and friends and even fellow church members. Christ is coming soon. Now the word fervent there uh, in verse 8, have fervent charity. Fervent is an athletic term. It's what... Uh, when the ball's hiked, you get fervent, right? <laughs> you just don't sit, stand there and say, oh, well, if he makes it through, he'll make it through. No, you get, you start uh, straining the muscles. You, you stretch the muscles. It's a picture of even a person running, giving maximum effort. Christian love is forgiving. Peter quoted Proverbs 10 and verse 12, Hatred stirreth up strives, but love covereth all sins. I wonder, are we sometimes 
historians. Now you say, yeah, sure, I like history. You all love history, I know you do. Uh, it was for your favorite class in school. But uh, that's not the kind of historian I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of historian that holds a grudge because you keep remembering the hurt or the pain that somebody caused you. God's love is not like that. In fact, like a muscle, God often allows us to be hurt, allows us to go through pain so that we can love more deeply. And like a muscle that's been fatigued and stretched, maybe in the gym or on the ball field, after recovering, it develops the capacity to do even greater things, lift a heavier load, persevere through more pain. Same way, I believe God often allows pain to happen in order to us in order to stretch our love and make us more fervent. Our love must be deep and fervent. We must allow this love to be stretched as we cover the sins of others. Number three, we must practice hospitality without complaining. Verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Oh, if I have to be nice to that person, invite them over, I guess I will. You know, we can say, well, I'm being hospitable. Yeah, but you're complaining about it all the way through. Here's another way to live in view of eternity by practicing hospitality. Now, the word hospitality literally means love of strangers. Characteristic of those in spiritual leadership, of course, because the scripture tells us that bishops must be given to hospitality in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Certainly this was even more important in the times that, uh, that Peter was writing to the believers at that time. Uh, they didn't have the Holiday Inn Express. Uh, they didn't have the nice uh, places to stay. You know, hotels and inns and fancy places like that. See, when the gospel was being spread, hospitality was needed in order to host missionaries and pastors and teachers and, and people that were traveling, fellow Christians. Maybe the primary work way that Peter was exhorting Christians was to live in view of eternity and support the work of missionaries. And this was done oftentimes by taking them into their homes and praying for them and giving financially to support their mission, among other things. And we could realize, uh, or should realize, that all the support we give will be rewarded by God. Jesus said even giving a glass of water to a disciple will have a reward. People who are truly zealous about being hospitable realize that the end is near. They have a proper view of eternity. And uh, certainly hospitality is not just for missions, but should be shown daily to brothers and sisters in Christ. How can we practice hospitality? What ways can we stretch our love practically by serving others? whether they be missionaries or people in our church, how is God challenging us to love more fervently? And then the last thing we notice here in verses 10 and 11, we must use our spiritual gifts to glorify God. Verse 10 says, 
every man hath received the gift. Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Another way to respond to Christ's coming, soon coming, is by using our spiritual gifts. Here in this verse 10, it's clear that everybody, he says, notice he says, every man hath received. Everybody has a, at least one spiritual gift. And that's very clear there by that phrase, every man. That's also taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 by the, but, and verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. So every person, each person has been given a gift by the Holy Spirit to serve Christ in the church. And you find that these gifts are given in two categories, speaking and in serving. The speaking gifts include such things as the ability to encourage others, Sometimes people just need an encouraging word. Or exhorting them. Exhorting them maybe help them to realize that there's a need in their life and they, they need to uh, attend to that. Sometimes preaching, sometimes teaching, singing, witnessing, evangelism, and prophecy. Those are the speaking gifts. Serving gifts is the other category, and that includes like leadership and helps and mercy and ministration and so forth. But as we look at our gifts, we find that they're all different. You have a different gift than the person next to you or the, as everybody else. But we need those gifts if we're going to serve uh, the body of Christ here. If we were all the same, then we would need one another, would we? But we're not all the same. And Peter calls this God's grace in an it's manifold or various ways. Manifold or various ways. The manifold grace of God. He get, his gifts show up in many ways to bless and enrich the church. And so as we as believers use the various gifts in view of the end times, it makes our church more beautiful. I'm not talking about the way the facility looks. We have a nice facility. I'm talking about the people. They're more beautiful and they're more attractive, even to unbelievers. And so when they come to our church, they see we're exercising the gifts, and it's attractive to them. And then finally, Peter gives us the reason to use these gifts, and we use them for the glory of God. In verse 11, he, he says there, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When we use our gifts as a part of the body, God brings glory to himself through Christ. We honor him and we glorify him. Consequently, we dishonor God if we don't use them. Now, sometimes fear enters in the picture. Sometimes people say, I'm afraid of using my gift. Maybe I have a gift of teaching. I'm afraid to use it. I'm afraid of praying. I'm afraid of evangelizing. I'm, a, I'm afraid of leaving my job to prepare for missions. 
Fear will be a major deterrent in the usefulness of these gifts in building the kingdom of God. So a person who does not have a proper view of the end times will be fearful and be lazy in the use of their gifts. And yet, when we live with a proper view of Christ's second coming, there's encouragement. Uh, there's also accountability to serve, and one day he will reward us. He, he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So the fact that Christ's return is very near should be a motivation for us to use our gifts. Are we living in view of eternity? One of the ways that Peter encourages these saints is uh, even in their suffering was telling them that the end is near. That's what he said in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Part of the reason many Christians don't suffer well is because we only have an earthly view of life. So what does a Christian look like who's living with a view of eternity? Well, in the view of eternity, Christians must have focused prayer life. We must have love for other believers fervently. Christians must practice hospitality without complaining. And we must use our spiritual gifts to glorify God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for...